0: Whether it's in the worlds of private equity and venture capital, or as an innovator leading the charge with HSBC's BAS projects, Paul Staples has established a reputation as an embedded finance expert. And as you'll hear on today's show, few can match Paul for his generosity of spirit and desire to engage conversations that move embedded finance forward for all. The 2Ds have them here on Dave & Darm Demystify.
1: From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. The Dave and Dom Demystify Show. Making a sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dar Mystery.
0: Demystify. Welcome to today's show. And today we have a special guest, Paul Staples, who's one of the leading experts in embedded banking. So Paul, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you're up to?
2: Thank you very much, Dave. So a very kind introduction, say one of the leading experts. But yeah, I've certainly been in this field for quite some time. And even when it was in its original form or not even when it was called embedded banking or embedded finance. So yeah, I've been doing this now for four years as in the definition of embedded finance. But if you go all the way back 10 years or so when I was in the world of security services and we started to service some of our clients with capability that we had in-house and enabling them to support their own processes directly. You could kind of say that was a little bit of embedded banking that was going on then all those years ago. So yeah, the last four years has been very much dedicated to direct embedded finance. More recently, working with HSBC to build literally from the ground up, from a post-it note almost all the way through to what everyone's read in the press with the Netsuite transaction out in the US, building an entire bass edge layer to the bank, and then creating that capability—I call it the muscle in embedded finance—that's required. So building that within the organisation and scaling that business. And now more recently, I'm you know, kind of currently engaged by a number of private equity and venture cap groups to support their investments in the world of embedded finance, embedded banking, because there's a lot of good stuff in that space and there's a lot of bad stuff in that space and misinterpretation. So I'm trying to help organisations get up the curve on that.
3: Wow. It's a fantastic experience that you've got. And I have to say, Paul, that I've been really excited to speak to you today because, as you've seen, I've been writing about BAS for quite some time. But, you know, it's really good to get a real banker's perspective on this. And would you mind just sharing what's the bank's take on BAS? Like, where does it see it going? And how important is it? Will you be doing it globally? I'm sorry, loads of questions, but I mean, it's just, I'm excited.
0: Sounds <laughs> like a kid in a candy shop at the moment. So.
3: <laughs> so, Let's start with the first part, which is
2: why are banks looking at bass? And you've got all sorts of manner of banks out there looking into this space because it's a symptom of being relevant. That's the way I look at it. So, You have all the banks. Banks really only do five things anyway. They kind of hold money, they store money, they kind of lend money, they move money around, they transform it, and they help invest it. Arguably, there is a sixth kind of notion, which is insure, which kind of goes hand in hand with financial services, but less so with the banks. So when you've got those five principles, all the banks are kind of looking at how do we now get user adoption of those capabilities on a mass distributed scale, and... It's very expensive to have relationship managers. It's very expensive to have sales folks. So how do we now get that reduced cost of customer acquisition? And they're now doing that through this notion of banking as a service. And enabling others to deploy that within their ecosystems. So you look at Standard Chart, they've got their own capabilities. You look at HSBC, JP, City with Spring. Everyone's kind of tackling it from different areas. Some are tackling it from merchant acquiring, which is the thematic out there with JP. Some are tackling it from more the payments-based orientation, which is what you've got with City Spring. You've got SME-based. Banking as a service, which is where HSBC has built out its initial proposition with other things in the pipeline. So everyone's kind of tackling from different areas. Why? Because they've got to be relevant. They've got to get their banking capabilities where it's needed at the point of use. Actually, will there be winners and losers in all of this? Absolutely. I think embedded finance, embedded banking is a scale game. It's also a position of the technology doesn't win in this. Right, And that sounds a real crazy statement to say, but technology is just an enabler. And all technology does is actually enable you to do it faster or slicker or more efficient and quick, you know, those sort of things. It doesn't actually make a difference with what actually embedded finance is there to try and do. So all the banks are kind of looking at these things going, we've got the greatest technology and they're all jumping into it with massive gusto because they want to be relevant but they're all finding their way through it and trying to find their little niche within it as well at the moment
0: i really like your point around it's not about technology when you were at hsbc how did you start building out that proposition as you say I think it was within a business context rather than a personal customer context but did you start with a bit of technology and say well how do we make this work or did you start from a different perspective From a slightly
2: different perspective, so if you kind of neutralize what technology actually is and just says that just enables things, what is it that people actually want with embedded finance? And so through a series of four or 500 customer conversations, partner conversations, ecosystem type conversations, and those conversations are relevant today, whether they're HSBC or other, but what we're able to identify is that the proposition that people actually want is the ability to be helped with doing embedded finance or helped with doing the process through which it becomes relevant, right? So we didn't start with a technology. We then kind of retrofitted what we were able to do to the technology and say, okay, we now need to have payment capabilities. We need check clearing capabilities. Ironically, America still largely exists on checks. So we had to do APIs for check processing and issuance, cards. But once you kind of understand what's needed, you can then build those Lego blocks that are out there. But there's no point kind of going out there saying, we've got the full toolbox, building the full toolbox when you only need a hammer to start with. So it was actually understanding the captive audience that we had within HSBC to say, where are we gonna start? Then finding a partner to refine that even further to what do we need for that first partner? And that dictated the initial roadmap of what we were doing. And then created the scalability behind the scenes. Because actually, this is one thing a lot of banks have a lot of worries over, is the operational handling. So banks, back-end systems, and processing systems are largely set up to support the flow of a salesperson bringing 10 new customers a year that do X amount of transactions. But now if you build a partner that's going to bring you you 50,000 times that number potentially, what does that do to your back end operations? How do you create that scalability in the back end? And that creates a lot of worry-beads with operations departments. So we had to not only look at the proposition, the outreach that we were doing and the technology, but then the operational stack that we had with it. And that's where some of these new players that are coming to market that are new banks, specifically set up on the cloud with proper banking licenses With their own new edge API technology, they don't have any of that baggage, if you will, that kind of hangover of the hundreds of years of banking that are in the back end. So kind of in summary there, Dave, we started with the idea and we had to talk to loads of customers on this. What did we as a bank stand for and what did they want from us to support them through an embedded finance journey? So you kind of have to go through an education phase first. And that education is absolutely fine. I have conversations today with some major Fortune 500 companies who still don't know anything about embedded finance. But the question I've got to ask is, does that matter? No. Should they know about it? Potentially, but it's presenting the opportunity and just opening their eyes up to the world of possibility. I joked at a conference just before Christmas, I said, embedded finance or embedded banking is a bit like a Petri dish it's a petri dish of creativity. Sometimes you're gonna come out with the most amazing collaboration, co-creative solution. And that's the equivalent of penicillin. And other times you're gonna go through the whole proposition design, testing, analyzing, doing the market assessment, and you're gonna come out with something which is like the flu, <laughs> which no one wants out that <laughs> petri dish. But that's just the result, you put the lid on it, you put it to one side, you don't do it. And that, therein lies the opportunity but the massive fundamental stumbling block that embedded finance has. Because those core competencies of co-creation, proper proposition testing of your partnership with what you're going into are often ignored. And then we get into that position of, well, why is the bank not making money from banking as a service? Because they've just basically taken any old Tom, Dick and Harry to say, yeah, have a payment rail, have a buy now, pay later. So have a card solution. We've actually, without analysing the proposition they're going into, it's partnership. So you know embedded finance, we've said it's capability, but actually that capability is only so much as it's got to be partnership, co-creation or joint ventures all the time in that sense. But that's a very long way of answering your question there, Dave, but
3: hopefully give some colour. Maybe this is an obvious question or not, but will the bank ever become a customer of your Bas platform of itself in effect, right? When I was building kind of like tools, we built a low code platform. And the question I always got asked was, is your tool built in your tool?
2: The architecture most banks are adopting is an edge layer over their existing infrastructure. So that edge layer over the infrastructure therefore cannot, by implication, replace their core infrastructure. If you look at some of the banks out and some of the multinational multi-geography banks, they've got 50 to 80 core banking systems so you can't bring a new core banking system in to replace that because actually some regulation prevents you from having two core banking systems so then do you sit a bass core banking system and a kind of omnibus type structure on top of your core specifically for the purposes of bass question mark or do you just set up a separate company altogether that leverages the license of the existing business And that existing business can then be, over time, filtered into that new core that's created. I haven't seen the second model created in any major, major banking organisations. There are a couple of European entrants that are specific for the bass market where legacy banks have been consumed and retrofitted with a new core banking system. And that's shown 20% return on investment pretty much from day one. There is that scope, but I don't see it happening in the major banks that are out there, to be very honest with you. I think you'll just create, constantly have this kind of edge or this veneer of APIs that exposes the core. So you won't see that cannibalization of core into the new core.
3: Going back to my analogy with the tool, because you know the kickback that we'd always get is, Yeah, well, if it's not good enough to build your tool in, it might not be flexible enough for our requirements, you know, but... I think it's a very, very fair statement. It's different in this scenario, I understand, because also you've got the operational and the regulation side of it as well.
2: My hypothesis,
3: and it may well be proven wrong, hence it's
2: a hypothesis, (laughs) is that the survivors in the next 10 years in banking as a service will be those that build on their own banking licence... So that you display the elements of trust, control, compliance, or those that have extremely tight relationships with underlying banks. So you've got two models that are beginning to evolve. You've got embedded finance through BAS where you are your own captive license or where you go through an orchestrator model. Or in America, I think they call it the program manager model where you build relationships with a number of underlying banks you go capture the partner and then effectively filter that down to a collaborating bank partner underneath that fits the needs, the size, the shape, the scale, complexity of what's needed. So you become almost like an API broker, an API simplification engine, orchestration engine in that sense. But if you don't have those robust banking licenses underneath, I think we're going to start to see, and we're already beginning to see this in Germany. We saw some of this early 22 in the US, West Coast US, where regulators are now becoming really hot on how banks operate, even arm's length relationships with those that provide licenses or Bass providers arm's length to relationships with uh, underlying banks. So I think we're going to see much more scrutiny on that. But those that use their own platform for their own bank, and they are focused on banking as a service as a whole. I think actually that is the tried and tested model. And there are a couple of banks that are out there. You've got Colum in the US, you've got Verdino in Europe that run off their own core banking system that they've created. And they expose that same core banking system externally.
0: I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Verdino there because I wanted to go back to your point around proposition, the importance of proposition development. When you think about embedded banking, I think we spoke to Metro AG and Vodina, and what I was particularly struck by was how Metro had identified a kind of customer pain point and they looked to address that with a banking as a service style application. I'm a marketeer and it really spoke to me about loyalty and understanding those pain points. So. In terms of the importance of that sort of proposition development, as, as banks are thinking about building out BAS from a technical point of view, are they also then sort of building in that customer marketing thinking, and are they looking at partnerships? I'm ex which is a big marketing services group. And it kind of strikes me that they'd be a great partner for some of the BAS players, because they are the people who understand the end consumer and they're working with brands who are all going to be thinking about how do we build out loyalty. So what's going on in that space is the question.
2: Embedded Finance 1.0, I describe as a feature factory. You've got a bunch of capability and people need it to do something because they need to accept payments, they want to enable credit card payments or they want to provide credit. That's 1.0, simplified forms of widgets. The real benefit that I think we're beginning to see now is the actual underlying of a customer pain point and a process and the deep interrogation of that to understand what's the proposition that can be built. And it can only be built when there is collaboration between a non-bank entity and a bank entity. I joked at a conference in the U.S. last year where I said bankers don't wear pinstripes anymore. Bankers now wear hoodies, or in my case, a jumper and a white shirt. But you know, bankers don't wear suits anymore because actually we understand what payment rails are. We understand how FX can be done. We understand how accounts work. That's the easy bit. The hard bit is actually working with a non-bank entity to go through the user journey mapping, the design thinking the creativity, the ideation stages, and with that partner who actually understands their customers, and they may also engage companies like WPP to help them with that process. You know, what's the brand value stand for? Where are people not getting gain from the product? All those sorts of things. We have to, as technology bankers and providers of BAS, spend more time in that part of the equation than we do actually in the technology part of the equation to make embedded finance effective. And finding those needs and those pain points, those gains, the risks, the fears with the underlying end user, that's not easy. And this is where you see everyone going, oh, yeah, we're going to move into embedded finance. But it's feature factory. It's just you've commoditized it. I joked with one client of mine a couple of weeks back that said, oh, we get a lot of RFPs. I said, that's wonderful. And we have great success at winning those RFPs. But actually, I said... You're already late to the party when it's an RFP because the partner has already determined what they need. You're not able to go into co-creation with them. You're not able to test their proposition. You're not able to do client segmentation work or anything like that. You are now at the mercy of saying, we've just got to trust that your proposition is going to work. Yeah. And this is where this is where I get quite um, animated is that if you're going to do embedded finance properly... You can't just do it by adding a button to a checkout page.
0: It's not just the buy now, pay later button or something like that. Is it? It's kind of like the build it
3: and they will come strategy. It's totally wrong. Just because you have the services available, et cetera, doesn't mean that everyone should start using them. And what you want is sticky propositions that will last the time so that you both make money. Yeah. The problem is the churn that you will see in very quick propositions that haven't been thought through, tested with customers, that'll be fly by nights. And they can waste a lot of time. They don't make any money in the beginning, and you can spend a lot of time before they make any money at all, if they do, right? So I think you're spot on. It's something that needs a deeper strategy. Like I've seen with a number of banks already, you know, their marketplaces are dead because they published a bunch of APIs created a sandbox and thought that was it
2: there's three parts of this marriage within embedded finance you've got the non-bank and the bank bringing something together but actually the third part is there is something that is always non-financial services related as a process that may sit in the bank or may sit in the non-bank that's actually required to make this work in embedded finance so take for example ERP systems If you've got an ERP that helps you pay all your invoices, well, the pain is paying thousands of invoices. Okay, now I can choose my three different rails, and they're sat within the ERP system directly. I don't have to navigate out. So that's friction step one solved. But that's not really the overall gain. The actual gain comes from the non-bank thing that is now enabled by doing the bank thing, for example, which is reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't banking, it's just something you have to do associated to banking. Now, by bringing the banking directly into the ERP system, not only do you remove the step of having to leave the e- ecosystem of ERP to do banking, you can actually now do the tertiary activities of banking, such as reconciliation, instantaneously or whatever timeframes you set up as a process within the ERP. So it's kind of the three parts, it's partner, bank, and non banking-based process activities that all kind of make this hang together when you do embedded finance and do it in a sense that is somebody else's ecosystem and not yours as the bank. Damage, you touch on another point around traction. If you're going into this in a joint venture perspective, you've got to be super clear who owns the go-to-market on this new proposition. Now, as a bank, you kind of want to be one step removed from that. You want to be influencing it, helping to shape it, but you don't want to own it because you don't have a right to own it. And the reason why we don't have a right to own it is typically you don't own the customer. You own the customer from a fiduciary regulatory perspective in a deposit taking, payment making, etc. but you don't own it from a relationship. And that's where a lot of organizations get quite hung up. I'm very, very clear with all my clients and my partners and the companies I work with is that when we do embedded finance, you own the relationship, I own the regulatory component to that customer. You can be the first line of voice to that customer. You can outsource that to us, but we'll present ourselves as you. So we have to be super clear in that ownership of the customer. And as a result of that ownership, the banks are somewhat reticent to own go to market, but they'll be there. The partners often want to lean on the brand strength that is the bank. As a result of that, that kind of gives the credibility. To the go to market. So there is a partnership in go to market, but the actual ownership drive investment spending that go to market comes from the partner. The bank provides a supporting role in that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really strong point that's not talked about often enough is that although the embedder has the client relationship, right, the actual customer wants to know that when it comes to the money part of that embedded finance, if money's involved in it, because it could be just doing credit scoring or whatever, but if a product is involved, then, then there's a real solid bank behind it. They're the ones that are ultimately taking responsibility for the product. And I think that's something that's been understated in the past. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Don't forget the
2: regulation out there. So there's no embedded finance regulation, right? And why is that? Well. You're providing banking to somebody else to do, but that doesn't dissolve anyone's responsibilities of doing what banks should be doing in the first place in any event. So you're not offloading responsibility as a bank. So I still have to present to the partner ecosystem and regulator requires for credit products that it's still shown that the credit provider and underwriter is so-and-so, bank X or company Y. The same is true where your deposits are and again this is where the world of e-money licenses globally have created a carefully positioned as I say people need to be more attuned into what e-money licenses actually are versus core deposit taking and credit institutions
3: yeah yeah yeah
2: we haven't seen any major fallout from e-money license which is great and really positive but there is depending on the end users needs for trust and capability will determine, and this is why I have a strong hypothesis that it will be those with true banking licences that will have, will have earned their real right to play in this space over time.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, when I speak to people that aren't in the banking space, they actually think that Revolut is a bank, but they're still waiting for a license and so they're nowhere near being a bank, really. They're an e-money provider, but the end consumer actually doesn't understand these differences
2: no they just see it as a store of value yeah they don't know how that store of value is being looked after what the risk is associated to it now to a a lay person that might be irrelevant if you're only using revolut to hold 100 bucks in at any point in time you've got your core bank is somewhere else you know hsbc natwest or lloyd's in the uk something like that that may be the case now i know a number of people who do operate revolut accounts on that basis but when you start moving up the end user demographic from solo entrepreneur to micro SME to SME to corporate to large corporate, actually, we now really care about where our money is and who's holding it and what regulatory capital tier one ratios that are being managed to make sure that money's in the safe space. So as you go up that curve of the end user, the importance of a deposit taking regulated institution increases massively. And that is why you're seeing there's quite a large sway of BAS providers, embedded finance providers, moving up the curve into SME, because they're seeing that where they have a true bank license, they can capitalize on that through the trust ratio. So there's a premium for trust, if you will.
3: Let me sneak in a final question. One of the other things that I've looked at, I guess, is that as you transition from just selling banking products now doing BAS, which is essentially selling technology right yeah
2: capability
3: and so now you're dealing with organizations that want to embed this stuff into their propositions how does the bank handle the sales aspect of that because that's what you're selling you're selling this as a service right this isn't your guys in the branch that you know were selling credit cards and loans right so what's the approach on selling
2: we spent a fabulous amount of time on this in some serious depth analyzing who we needed to speak to. And it will come as no secret and it's well publicized that the people that are receptive to embedded finance is not the CFO. It's not actually the CEO. In some research I was conducting, 80% of the hit rates of those willing to engage on a topic of this were CPOs, chief product officers, chief strategy officers, chief growth officers and chief customer officers. So everyone's a chief these days, but they're the ones that are receptive to this because they have a very different motivation. Their motivation is, can I increase my LTV? Can I create a new product? Can I go after a new market? Am I losing market share? Their actual job description is motivated to work with new propositions ultimately. The CFO, respectfully, they look at the bottom line and go, do whatever you need to do to make it work. Here's the investment dollars to make it work. Go prove it and make it work then. So the CFO is a key party you have to get into. But they kind of come in the second, third, fourth phase of the actual process of embedded finance because you've got to commit them to the outcomes that are going to happen. So for us as an organization, when we were at HSBC, we had to mobilize a very different sales methodology completely fundamentally different sales methodology and teach it to relationship managers and sales folk alike. What you're seeing now in younger, specifically set up banks to do embedded finance is actually they don't have any of the old relationship management methodologies. They have only the new methods. And it really is software as a service type sales methodology that's out there. But you're doing it in a way that's co-creation. So actually, What I love working with and and building teams around is actually having a bunch of mini entrepreneurs that every year they want to create two new little businesses with their partners that happen to use banking products. I hate giving credibility to this statement that every company could become a fintech, but I do think it's a little bit out there. But nonetheless, actually, that principle has some gravity because you can allow companies to have a new revenue stream. I don't think you turn them into a fintech, but you give them a new revenue stream propensity. And the way that you do that is you're creating a mini little business, part of the proposition that has a new edge to it, if you will, for these non-bank brands. So hopefully
3: that gives a bit of flavor and color. What's interesting is that the announcement end of last year that NatWest took on board Vodina's chief commercial officer, Tom Bentley, you know, to run their BAS sales side of things. And that's taking somebody out of the industry or selling tech, in effect, or banking systems, you know, to help them with their BAS proposition. I thought that was a very smart move. Yeah, yeah. You think more of that will happen? I
2: think more of that will happen. I think we'll also see, and what I strongly encourage, is more industry-specific specialists sitting between the void of a non-bank and a bank helping to understand where those pains and gaps and issues fears and risks are such that they can become conversant in both sides but don't need to be true bankers they don't need to be true practitioners of the non-bank brand if you will so you know i think we're going to see those coming in and filling this space in embedded finance as the experts and bringing the two parts of the puzzle together Certainly the the entities I'm helping to set up and create around the world have that notion, and, yeah, it is proving successful.
0: Very, very interesting final point, you know, and I think it's encouraging for people like myself who we sit in that space between technology propositions and the banks themselves. Listen, Paul, it's been absolutely brilliant, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I've learned a tremendous amount from this, and I think... You said it. Let's reconvene very soon. There's plenty, plenty, plenty more to talk about here. But thank you so much for today. I really appreciate it. Brilliant. Thank you, Paul.
2: Guys, thank you for having me. It's a very nascent space. The more we can do to educate everybody in this space... And the education isn't always going to be right. We're still learning about what's required. But the more we have these open conversations and explore and test each other's hypotheses on these things and ideas and opinions in a spirit of collaboration and making something better, not in a competitive, you're wrong mindset. I'm only ever going to be right mindset. That's only going to make this new world better. So that I encourage everybody to have more conversations like this. And you know, if anyone disagrees, when this gets released, Dave, if anyone disagrees with my comments, let me know. You know <laughs> I love to have a conversation because I'm still learning as much as I've been doing this for donkey's years. It's evolving at tremendous pace. So what I say here is from lessons learned, research gathered, impractical application of embedded finance but there's
0: a lot more to do fabulous thank you so much brilliant
3: thank you
1: thank you for tuning in to dave and darm demystify we hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on soundcloud be sure to connect with dave wallace and darmish mystery on linkedin and until next time ciao and have a marvelous week The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD+, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.